All right, today we're returning to our study in the book of Mark, the gospel or Mark or the book of Mark. I introduced this consecutive expository series a few weeks ago. And our scripture reading today begins to introduce a new section in Mark's gospel. It begins to segue, as it were, into what would become, could be called the latter Galilean ministry. Up until this point, Jesus has been in the first or early Galilean ministry. Today, we begin in this reading, Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7 through verse 19. The beginning of what would be called the latter Galilean ministry. I ask you to hear with careful attention and appreciation for this is the word of God, not the word of men. Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Eudemia, and from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, excuse me. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word today. Let's now ask his blessing upon it. Father, we ask you once again that you would send your Holy Spirit in a very special way to guide and illumine your truth to our hearts that has been read. Help us understand it, Father, and help us, Lord, receive it and walk by it, in its light. 
Give us faith. We pray that we might understand and live more pleasing to you and follow you as our shepherd. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark, as I said, began his book by introducing to us Jesus as a man of action, a man of power, and a man of authority. His unorthodox style and methods were getting him in trouble, however, with the religious establishment of his day. First of all, the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees. And ultimately, they got so frustrated with Jesus by this point, as we saw last week, they went out and allied themselves with the most unholy, unlikely alliance. They even brought in the hated Herodians. Those who were in cahoots with Rome and the empire's policies. And they normally hated them, but so great was both groups' hatred of Jesus that they banded together in order to oppose him and try to find a way to expose him and entrap him. In the next few chapters, we're just getting started with this new section, as I said already. In the next few chapters, Mark will point out how that almost no one really got who Jesus was and is. They didn't comprehend who Jesus really is and what He came to do. We've already seen that He was misunderstood, and I just told you, by the religious leaders. We've already seen that confusion, their obtuseness, their inability to get what Jesus was saying or to appreciate it. But soon he will be misread and misunderstood by people from his own hometown and believe it or not, even his own family. Who is Jesus really? Is the question that may be a two-part because we're just beginning to get to that section. But that's coming. Today, Mark does a little bit of, before going on to those kind of issues, Mark does a little summarization. He's summing up Jesus' Galilean ministry up until now. And he's also chronicling for us how Jesus chose his special followers that would be known and designated as by him apostles, which simply means sent ones. And he gives us the function and their identity. What purpose were they to serve and their identity as individuals? Because they would play a key role in God's future plans, Christ's future plans of the kingdom and its coming that Jesus came to bring and told us already that it was near at hand. So today, once again, we're only going to use two points to look at this section of Scripture, the text. 
First of all, the person. And secondly, that's in, in, in verses 7 through 12, basically. And then the rest of the section that we read up to verse 19 through verse 19, 13 through 19, is the plan. How was Jesus going to go about this, continuing his ministry? Was he going to go it alone, or was he going to gather others? And of course, we know it's the latter. So let's look at that today. First of all, the person of Jesus. Thousands came to see John the baptizer. By the way, he wasn't John the Baptist. He, didn't, he wasn't John the Methodist or the Presbyterian. He was John the baptizer. He didn't belong to a denomination. He was a person who baptized in order to fulfill righteousness and to call sinners to repentance. Telling them that the one that God had promised is coming. Repent and believe the gospel. Just as Jesus began and inaugurated his ministry with those words. John was big. But he paled by those that at this point in time were beginning to flock to Jesus. From all over. From everywhere. People were coming. Mark gives us a, an incredible depiction of how diverse this group was. This was not only Jewish people coming to hear one of their own. There were non-Jews that were coming to hear Jesus. They had heard such stories. It was His fame was spreading like wildfire at this point in His ministry. People, of course, were coming from Galilee, which was a fairly populated region at that point in time. All around the, the lake of, of Tiberias, or Sea of Galilee, as it was known then. Galilee, certainly there were people there, that we expect, because he's in Galilee. But they were coming as far away as Judea, much further south to the area of Jerusalem. They were coming even from there, which is quite a few days journey by foot. But they were coming to hear and listen to Jesus and see what this what this new rabbi was doing. They were even coming from Eudemia. Now, what is Eudemia? That's Edom. That's basically on the doorstep of Egypt, way, way further south of Judea. So they were coming from a very far away place. Also from Tyre and Sidon. They were coming from the Transjordan on one side and then from the, almost the coastal areas on the other Literally, north, south, east, and west, people were flocking and coming to Jesus. And with this list, Mark is showing us that Jesus has more than plans just for the people of Israel. He has more than concern only for the Jews. He starts there. But ultimately he reveals that his plan, and this is Mark's way of saying, by the way, Mark was writing to whom? Gentiles, primarily in Rome. Roman Gentiles. He was trying to say, Jesus had you in mind. People were coming, not just Jews, not just special people of God, but from all over to listen and hear to the preaching and the ministry of Jesus God's only son. So, 
intense was the impact of Jesus' healing. At this point in time, there's no telling how many people he had healed. And this, is said, was spreading like wildfire. Jesus said he came principally to preach and teach the gospel. And healing was secondary. But, of course, people wanted to get to the healer. Jesus told his disciples, therefore, because of the press of the crowd, he knew that this is going to get out of hand. He literally said, hey, get a getaway boat ready, Peter. Get some guys and get ready if the, if the throng pushes in and this press is too much. Basically, he was calling for celebrity security. If you've ever been to a, a, a rock concert or, or a concert of which there's somebody incredibly famous, the security around that, they have to have all kind of a security. Basically, Jesus needed that kind of detail. It was so out of hand. And Jesus knew he had a lot still to do in finishing his ministry. But the physically sick weren't the only ones pressing in on Jesus. That's in verse 10 that we saw. But who else was coming? Apparently, demons were coming out of the woodwork. And throwing themselves at Jesus. And when they threw themselves down, they were crying out his name. They were coming and shrieking and snarling his name out loud. Verse 11. Look. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Now what caused those malevolent spirits to fall down and cry out his name? Well, some people think, and there certainly was a practice in that time, even still today, there are those who think you can see this in movies and whatever, and whether it's a fictional or whether it's document. The people that think somehow if you can get the true name or identity of a person, you can somehow control them, gain access of control over them. Some people think maybe that's what was going on here. Is these demons thought they could somehow, if they could call out his name, it would give them some more control over Jesus to be able to battle against him his kingdom I don't think that's what is going on here I think it's far more likely that Jesus because of who he is he's well known already they already know him they don't have to be introduced and they know who he is but Jesus's mission had to be fulfilled from first to last and it had to go all the way through to the end. And if you see, even in the very temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, one of the major strategies of the evil forces of darkness was to try to keep from Jesus completing his fulfilling of all righteousness, which was necessary for our salvation. He had to do everything, both positively and also penalty-wise pay for our sin. If somehow that got short-circuited, it got cut somehow before its time, if it was plucked before it was ripe and ready, 
it would not have accomplished the purpose of God. And I believe they were trying to expose Jesus. They were trying to throw and to get the enemies of Jesus to more and more coalesce. And that's why Jesus said, shut up. Stop it. Zip it. Because his time had not yet come. Do you notice how many times the gospel writers say statements like that? We were about to throw Jesus off the cliff. And what did it say? His time had not come. He slept. He, he uh, was able to somehow maneuver out of the crowd, out of that dangerous circumstance. Why? God was superintending him. But he himself knew that everything had to be fulfilled in its own time. And I believe these demonic forces were trying to cut it short, interrupt the process, the plan of Jesus. That was their only game, that was their only hope. That Jesus wouldn't finish the task of coming to be our Redeemer. I believe that's the reason why they were crying out his name, trying to expose him, trying to intensify and short circuit his plan of salvation. But it didn't work. Now it's hard to imagine Jesus here, the kind of pressure that he was under from. Think about it. This endless stream of people that just kept coming and kept coming with all their maladies and with all their sickness. And then these demon-possessed humans that were controlled by something out of this world and demonic. And then on top of that, you've got the snitching Pharisees watching his every move. It's like a sting song. Every move you make, every breath you take, I'll be watching you. That's what they were doing. They were constantly carping and at his throat and trying to see if they could catch him in anything they could use to defeat him, to expose him. Yeah, now here's what I want you to understand practically. Yes, we know theologically speaking, Biblically, Jesus is God. He's not just the Son of God. He is God. God the Son. But He's also true man. He's the Son of God and He's the Son of man. He's both the God-man. Now, if that's true, if that is true, it's real easy for you and me to think, well, you know, this was no big deal. Jesus, you know, he just took this in stride. Yeah, you and I, we'd be under a lot of pressure, but not him. No, quite the contrary. There was incredible pressure. There was incredible tension that Jesus was undergoing. Why? Because of his own humanity. He wasn't God in a, in a, in a suit. He wasn't God in a suit. He wasn't somehow being less than being truly human. And in his humanity, Jesus got exhausted. He got tired. He, got, he felt the pressure, just like you and I do in this world. Jesus was fully man. And that means he understands and understood 
his disciples then and now. He understands the pressure of the treadmill that you and I are often on. A lot of times people don't realize that part of what Jesus underwent and went through and suffered was that he might understand. Read Hebrews. It tells us in order that he might understand and be a sympathetic high priest to us. When we're pressured and when we think it's going to all come apart, Jesus was there in a pressure cooker greater than anything you and I will ever be in. And yet he stayed faithful and stayed the course. He understands our struggle. He understands our fight to stay in the battle, to stay engaged, to remain faithful when everything else says throw in the towel, give it up. Now, that's the person of Jesus. What about the plan? What was he up to? What was he trying to do? What was the, what was the next step? Verses 3, 13 through 19, chapter 3. Jesus, how in the world was he going to manage all these demands? Well, he had a plan and it involved adding some others to his posse. <laughs> to get some others to join him and follow him. And be his disciples. As I said, he called them specifically apostles, which simply means sent ones. Now the first thing Mark says in this section is that when Jesus went up onto a mountain to call his disciples. Now let me ask you this. Why? Why, why couldn't they have just stayed on the beach? Beach was nice. Why didn't they just hang out there and call them there? Wherever he went, they followed. Why didn't they do it at a dinner party? Because in the Bible, in particular the Old Testament, mountains were places of great spiritual significance. Remember Abraham? You remember Moses? Elijah or Carmel? Mountains are a place of great significance. They have a huge symbolic importance. They were the place of revelation. Mountains were places where God would reveal himself. As he did to Abraham on Moriah. As he did to Moses and Sinai. He brought the victory to Elijah on Carmel. Now, so that's why a mountain. Mark is trying to say, hey my readers, listen. This Jesus went up like a Moses, like an Abraham. He went up and received from God the plan, the purpose. He was in submission to the Father as you and I should be. Now why did he choose 12? That's the next question. Why not 5? Why not 10? Why 12? Well, that shouldn't be too hard. Because how many original tribes were there of Israel? Twelve. Right. You remember that from Sunday school. The number of the original tribes. But here's the point that's different. What was he doing? He's just like, oh yeah, I said there were twelve tribes. I, I like that. It's a good round number. Let's just choose twelve. You know. Let's just, let's, let's just do uh, uh, a twelve. That's, that, that's as good as any. No. No. It was because of what Jesus was going to do. The original 
Twelve tribes had what? Failed their purpose. And they'd been sent off into exile. And for the most part, very little of them ever came back into this land. Jesus is saying, just like the first Adam messed it up, Adam number two, me, I'm going to get it done. And Jesus chooses 12 to send a signal that he will use his apostles to reconstitute, be the organizing human instruments of the new Israel of God. That's huge. It's not plan B in God's purpose. It is going to be a total remake of the old failed administration under the law and now under the gospel. It's going to incorporate both Jew and Gentile to become of all who believe the new Israel of God. I want you to listen to two verses. Matthew chapter 19 verse 28. Jesus is speaking here on earth. And he says, Jesus said to them, to his disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, in other words, in the world that I'm coming, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The old has passed away, the new has come. That's going to be the permanent, the new Israel of God. Also, listen to Galatians 6, 15 through 16. Paul has been talking about the gospel, about salvation by grace, not by works, by merit. He says, for neither circumcision, in other words, of your Old Testament, or if you're a Gentile and you didn't have or don't know anything about circumcision, he said, neither one of those matter. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Something made new. And as for all who walk by this rule, if you listen to what I'm saying, Paul says, if you're hearing what I'm saying about it's not whether you've been circumcised or not, it's not whether you were part of the old administration or the new, no. It's about a new creation that I'm bringing and making all things new. And he says, peace and mercy be upon them, those who are listening to what I'm saying in this book, in Galatians, and are hearing the gospel, he says, and then he says, and upon the Israel of God. Have you ever caught that before? Be upon what Israel of God? The old Israel that rejected? No! The believing Israel of God, made up of Jews and Gentiles. The plan of Jesus is coming together. Like Hannibal... He always loved it when a plan came together. If you ever saw the A-Team back in the day, kids, read it, go, go look it up, and you've got, you got YouTube, you can find some episodes. He always loved it with the cigar in his mouth. I love when a plan comes together. Jesus' plan came together in a new reconstituted Israel. Not of the old, but of the old and new in Christ. A new beginning, a new creation.
You see, this was a clear messianic signal. I get so frustrated with these people that say, well, Jesus never said he really claimed to be God. He never claimed to really be. What book are you reading? Or you haven't read? Over and over and over. Now, yes, sometimes it's covert. It's designed, but believe me, the knowledgeable people that were around him, the Pharisees, they got it. They got exactly what this was. They weren't going, hmm, I wonder what he means by that. This was an absolute tantamount, but veiled, but clearly gotten point by his enemies that he is the one that will make this happen. He is the Messiah to come. Now, what was the function of this motley crew of 12? What was the function of them? He said, well, hey, don't, don't call them a, in a rock band name. No, motley crew. By the word, the word motley, let me give you a definition for it. Webster defines motley as composed of diverse and often incongruous elements. Now, what's the translation of that? In other words, stuff that just doesn't really fit together. A bunch of things from a lot of different places, and they don't really at all play well with others. They're very, very diverse. And yet, that's exactly who God, Jesus, called together. It literally says, those whom he, he chose, he wanted, he called. <laughs> it wasn't their choice, it was his Remember I told you before, rabbi usually worked the other way around. A student decided which rabbi he wanted to choose. This rabbi says, no, I'll do the choosing. You, 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 and you. And it says, and they came to him. You see, what was their function? Well, primarily, yes, they would have a ministry function of, of, of ultimately being a part of the mission and even casting out demons, that would happen and would become reality. But at the very essential core, what was their function? Well, it's the same as it is now for Jesus' disciples. It hasn't changed. So you say, but what is that, Joe? To be with Him. Just to be with Him. And spend time in his presence. That's what Jesus calls disciples to do. That's what he was telling these guys. Come on guys. Walk with me. Follow me. We're, gonna go, we're going someplace. And I want you to be with me. Through thick or thin. We're going to go. It's going to be. I'm not, he didn't tell them what all the road was going to look like. He just said follow me. Isn't that truth of how God does to us? He doesn't tell us what all the road is going to entail. If we knew, some of us might want to jump ship. But he says, trust me and follow me. Just be in his presence. You know, I, there's so many books about discipleship written. And some of them are so confusing. And you, get, you can read and after about a dozen of them. You think, well... Which of these 12 ways is the right way you're supposed to be discipled? I don't know, I, I, but I know this. I just know that 
people that discipled me, they just invited me to hang out with them and go with them and hang in their presence, eat with them, meet up with them up on the mountain, play guitar with them. They just hung, they just, they just shared their life. Oh yeah, there were, there were some things that went through that had some, some order and system to them and whatever. But you know, the thing that was most transforming was just that. And that's what Jesus is saying. Just be with me. Why is that so important? You're going to see in just a moment. Mark then gives the identity of the 12 apostles, the sent ones that Jesus chose. I believe we've got a graphic up there, don't we? Uh, uh, yeah, there they are. <laughs> now, not that that helps you. And by the way, I'm not a photograph of them. We don't know what they look like. But at least they look, these guys, uh, you know, have, have uh, enough, uh, maybe things that would, might think, might have looked something like that. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Certainly a lot of them have beards. So that certainly would have, would have been the case and in all probability. Um, we don't know what they look like. But here's what we do know. Ultimately, all but two, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, Mark pointed out, and John, who was exiled. All the rest of those disciples sealed their faith and trust in Christ in martyrdom. History tells us that every one of them died incredibly horrible and brutal deaths because of their faith in Jesus Christ and his cause. And so, what's the point? The point is not that motley crew. The point is what Jesus can do with such a motley crew. That's the point. He called guys like that. And as you read even Mark's description, it kind of it looks like he's, he's just saying, now yeah, this one, and boy, this, even this one made it. Can you believe it? it? It almost feels like that, the way he catalogs it. You see, it's not so much about who they were and still today, it's not. It's about who they became because of Jesus. That's the really important point. Not who they were, but who they would become in the hands of Jesus. Listen to Kent Hughes, uh, his discussion about the twelve. He says, we all know the story. Wavering, inconsistent Simon became Peter, the rock. John and James, Bonerges, the sons of thunder, guys that couldn't keep their temper apparently in control, they ultimately became dynamic apostles, powerful apostles. Anonymous, average Andrew became the patron saint of three nations. Thomas, the skeptic, the man who was, we know is doubting Thomas, he became a man of great faith. Simon, the radical, subversive zealot, became a truly zealous man for God. The same happened to others outside the twelve. Even, even loathsome Levi, Matthew, remember the tax collector, 
he became one of the writers of the one of the four Gospels of the life of Jesus. It's what God does with us that matters. You see, discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but what Christ can make out of disciples like you and me. That's the real important point. He says to you and me, what? Follow me, and I will what? Make you fishers of men. That, that, that's the word beginning, creative act of God. I will make you. He doesn't say follow me and, and bring your best assets and, and I'll decide which ones I can. No, he says follow me and I will change you. Keep your eye on me and I will change you into something that you're not. You see, as we're learning in a, in a small group study that I'm in, it's more about beholding than it is about behaving. Right, Joey? It's more about beholding, looking at Jesus, focusing on Him, than it is about me trying to clean up my act and behave better. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, you better get it fixed or God's going to hammer you. The gospel is, you can't get it fixed. You won't be able to get it fixed. You need help. And that help is Jesus. He fixed it for you. Receive Him. Believe Him. Follow Him. Obsess with Him. Be in love with Him. Behold Him. Look at Him and keep looking until you see Him in His glory. That's what a disciple is. Jesus, my friends, is still calling disciples today. Did you know that? Has He called you? And maybe even more importantly, are you following? Are you beholding Jesus? Keep your eyes fixed on, as Hebrews says, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. To be obsessive with a desire to see Him more clearly. To love Him more. To gaze upon Him and His beauty. And Lord, then let it transform and cause all these other stupid, foolish things that we look to for life and happiness and abundance. Lord, let it be found only in Your Son. And Lord, let Him make the difference in us. We can't. We're not strong enough. We can't fix it, Lord. Only you can make us a new creation for your glory. And keep us walking and following Jesus all the days of our life. We pray in his name. Amen.